0: All right, so we are in week four of knowing this. We're walking through Second Peter, and I've been enjoying this series. I'm enjoying, I, I love going through the books of the Bible and, and walking through them and allowing God's Word to speak to us. And we're going to go through an interesting section here this morning. We're going to look at an entire chapter. There's 22 verses. We're, we're not going to actually go through every single verse because there's a theme that's in this chapter, chapter 2, that is the overarching theme of the entire chapter. We're going to kind of look at different sections of this chapter. And it's around the subject of false teachers and false teaching. And so it's a, it's a difficult subject, it's a challenging subject, it's one that is very important for us to understand. It's, it's a subject that is talked about in Scripture a lot more than most people think. And so false teaching, false teachers are talked about uh, often in Scripture, Old Testament and in, and in the New Testament. And so, we're going to look at that, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help during this time. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we present ourselves to you, and we submit ourselves to your word, and we ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and we look at the subject of, of false teachers and false teaching. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit would say To this church and to our church and to, to churches all over, Lord, we want to hear what you would say to us. Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the message title this morning is straight from the text, Destructive Heresies, Destructive Heresies. So have you ever been warned about something, but you've ignored the warning? Have been warned about something, but you ignored the warning? Maybe it's as simple as you have a check engine light on your vehicle, and you get the warning every single time you get in the vehicle. You start the car, and you get the warning, but you ignore it. You ignore it every time. is anybody doing that right now? Do we need to follow you home here today? You're ignoring your check engine light, but you ignore it long enough that eventually the problem, if it goes unchecked, it's not unnoticed because you know it. But if it goes unchecked, unattended to, what's going to happen? Whatever is privately, secretly, you don't know exactly what's happening because you're not a mechanic, right? It's a check engine light. It could be anything. But if you continue to let it go secretly without your knowing, something's going to break. It's going to stop. It could be something really serious. It could be something just minor that's easily fixed. But whatever it is, if you ignore a warning over and over again, you're going to reap the consequences of your ignoring And not walking in discernment and uh, dealing with the issue that, that you're being warned about. We do that often, don't we? We do it often with our vehicles, but we do it often in many other areas of our life. Maybe you're in a relationship and there's warning signs that your relationship is not good. It's not right. Something needs to be changed or fixed. If you ignore those warning signs long enough, you're going to find yourself on the other side of difficult situations in your marriage or in your life. So we should not ignore warnings. And in this chapter, chapter 2 from the Apostle Peter, we have one of the strongest warnings about false teaching and false teachers in all of the New Testament. This is, this whole chapter is devoted to a blistering attack on destructive heresy and the teachers who teach it. It is, it, Peter does not hold anything back. He doesn't hold anything back when he describes who these false teachers are and what they teach. He uses descript, very strong descriptive language to describe these false teachers. And, he's, and what is he doing? He's like that check engine light. You open your Bible, you read 2 Peter chapter 2, and it's our tendency to think, well, false teaching is really not that big of a, not that big of a deal. Why do pastors make a big deal about false teachers and false teaching? Why, why does the Bible focus on it so much? It's that check engine, light. we read chapter 2 and we tend to want to pass over it because we think it's really not that big a deal. And some, some Christians don't believe that we should even focus on clarity of doctrine as a church. Some, some believers think that, well, clarity of doctrine divides. Some people say, doctrine divides. And I would say, yes, it does. Doctrine does divide, which is what it is intended to do. If you make something clear, you're intending, if you're making clear the doctrines of our faith, you're intending to separate it from all other views. Is that not what you do? When you're having communication with somebody and you're trying to make it clear, you're, and they're not understanding, you, you clarify. You use clarifying words and clarifying sentences because you want them to understand. How much more significant is it? that we would clarify the most important realities this side of heaven, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is sound biblical doctrine. So some Christians say, well, it's just going to divide. Or, why does it matter? Well, in this text, we're going to see why it matters. It matters because false doctrine and false teaching blasphemes God, who has revealed himself clearly. Some people think scripture is not clear. There's a, a theological term called the, perp, the perpiscuity of Scripture, which simply means clarity. It's clear. Scripture is clear. Jesus was the most clear. Some people look at the life of Jesus and they say Jesus was the most loving person that ever lived. He was. He personifies love. But Jesus was the most clear when it came to speaking truth. He called out error. He called out the error of those who were false teachers. And he said, he said that narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. And few are it that find the narrow way. He drew clear lines, strong distinctions. This is who Jesus was, the Lord that we worship and that we follow. And so we're going to look at this chapter. Again, it's going to be an overview of chapter 2 of the subject of false teachers and false teaching. And what I see in here are three realities about false teachers and false teaching and then one main implication for us to wrap it all up. So three realities about this subject of false teaching and teachers and then one main implication for us. So the first reality we're going to look at is in the first three verses of chapter 2 and Second Peter. This is the first reality. False teaching is often subtle and covert. False teaching is often subtle And covert. What does it mean to be covert? It means it's not overt out in the open. It's covert. It's under the surface. False teaching is like that. It takes discernment to be able to recognize what is true and what is false. And so uh, false teaching by its nature is is, is a lie. And so lies can be deceiving. All right, that's what a lie is. It's deceiving. And so sometimes if we're not careful, we will not see it clearly. That's the nature of false teaching. Look what 2 Peter 2 says. But false teachers, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So did you notice what those words were? Two little things that I think are important to bring out. It says here, it says here, but false prophets. What is the but? The but is a transitional word, right? He just, we just looked at last week. What did we look at last week? We looked at the the more sure word of prophecy. We talked about the sufficiency of scripture, that we have a more sure word of prophecy, the scriptures to look to that we do well to pay attention to. And then Peter says, but, but we have that more sure word of prophecy, but there were false teachers that arose, past tense among the people, pointing to the Old Testament, firstly, and says that there were false prophets that arose among the people. Then he says, and there will be false teachers among you, pointing to the future, that people would point away from the sure word of prophecy, from the scriptures, and they will point away from that, and they will do that in the future. That's been the history of the church. And notice what he says. And these who are doing that, they will secretly bring in among the church destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. You know, most most people, when they think about false teachers or false teaching, they think of the obvious examples. You think of Mormonism or Jehovah Witness. Or you think of the crazy TV preacher that gets exposed nationally because of his sin and hypocrisy. And so, when people think of false teaching, they they think of those big examples, and they, they they don't think, "Well, we're really not exposed to false teaching because I'm not listening to the crazy guy on TV. I'm not I'm not I'm not going down the road of a cult, right? I'm just listening to my to my podcast. I'm just listening to YouTube. I'm just listening to my favorite YouTube uh, preacher, you know. Uh, and so I'm not. Susceptible to false teaching. But that's the deception of false teaching. It's subtle. It's covert. And, and the text says here that these teachings will come, on, come in amongst the people. And today in our world, it is more easier today than it has ever been for false teaching to creep into the church. Because it creeps into the church, not necessarily from individuals within the church, though that does happen. That's so, so what we, we see Peter saying here but it slips in, into the church, in your personal life. Who are you listening to? Who's the steady diet? Who's the person that you're listening to that's opening the word of God and explaining it to you? You know, that's what a preacher's job is to do, to open the Bible, read the Bible, explain the Bible, and apply the Bible to your life. That's what a preacher is called to do. So who are you allowing to do that in your life? This is how false teaching today creeps into the church. So most, notice Peter says here that the false prophets and and teachers rise among the people. So what does that mean? It means that at times it can be difficult to recognize false teaching. It can be difficult. And Jude, the the epistle of Jude, brings a a, a little supplement and shows us the same picture here. It says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to, to the saints. For certain people have crept in, what? I noticed. Some people have crept in. Crept into this building maybe, into a church you used to attend, on, through your, your, air, your, your AirPods, through your headphones, while you're driving your car. Right? It's subtle. It's secretive. And it's destructive. False teaching is subtle, it's secretive, and it is destructive. And Peter calls it clearly. He says these are destructive heresies. And so as I was preparing to look at this, I I thought to myself, well, if I just talk generally about false teachings, but I don't do any warnings about what are some common ones for us to look out for, then I would be doing you a disservice. And so what I want to do is within this first reality that false teaching is subtle and it's covert at times. It's not always out in the open for us to recognize. I want to give us five, what I believe are five categories of false teaching. Now, these are not, this is not an exhaustive list, but I believe these are really five strong categories where you can find, connected to these, these views, these teachings, a lot of false teaching and heresy. So, follow with me here. These are going to be challenging for us to process, but are you up for processing some things with me? I'm going to call them gospels, so they're all going to have the word gospel, but they're all what I believe to be false gospels. False, one, of, one major false gospel is this, is the self-esteem gospel. This is the main point of that gospel. It's this. This is the main message in the sentence. We become the center of the biblical story. We become the center of the biblical story. This is, or you could say it like this. The point of Christianity is you. It's a self-esteem gospel. The point of Christianity is you in these kind of teachings. The problem with your life, and this this is what these teachers will say. The problem with your life is that you don't think high enough of yourself. You don't understand your potential. And the Bible is designed to help you reach your full potential. So every message that's coming from this self-esteem type gospel message is that that if you would just know how great you are, if you would just know the potential that is within you, then you could fulfill your God-given purposes. Now, is there truth built into that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are made in the image of God. We have intrinsic value and worth. But whenever you take that truth from God's word and you flip it on its head and you start teaching other type of messages, you start making us the primary focus of the Bible. And, and messages be, begin to be taught that are pointing you to, to you being the hero of all the stories. Like I'm, I'm David and David and Goliath and And I'm Moses and and I'm the hero. And this is what God, this is is what the Bible is all about. Helping you to become the best you that you can possibly be. Another way to phrase it, not to step on anybody's toes a little bit. Another way to phrase it would be, God wants you to have your best life now. And that's what the self-esteem gospel is. You come to church and it's all about you. We're not singing holy, 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 holy to God. We're singing singing, uh, how awesome, awesome, awesome we are. And this is what God wants to do in our life. And it is about us achieving and having great self-esteem. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. And this gospel, this message, these self-esteem driven messages, they're attractional. And they're easy to hear. Who doesn't want to hear messages that tell you how great you are and what you can accomplish and what you can be? It's easy to hear that. But that's not the point of the scriptures. It's not the point of the the Bible. Here's another one. And these feed on each other. We would call it, and you've heard it called before, the prosperity gospel. And here's what I would say. This is my sentence, my summary sentence of the prosperity gospel. It would be this. God becomes a means to our own end. That's the nutshell of the, of the prosperity gospel. God becomes a genie in a bottle and he is just a means for me to get what I want. I want a healing. I want financial provision. I want this. I want that. I want a job, a, a new job, a better job, a pay raise. I want this to happen in my life. And, and through the lens of the prosperity gospel, God is there for me to get what I Desire, And so then the Bible becomes just a means for me to get what I want. So you see how the self-esteem gospel and the prosperity gospel, they go hand in hand. These false teachings tell people that God exists for the purpose of helping you prosper in every area of your life, but especially in your finances. You know what's interesting about the prosperity gospel? Listen, this is so important, listen. In this message, there is no category for suffering. In the prosperity gospel, When you suffer, there is no category for it. Because if God is only there to meet all of your needs all the time, then what about the suffering that you walk through? What did we just walk through over the last month? Where's the God of the prosperity gospel? For the families who have nothing and are living in tents. That gospel doesn't work in Chauvin. That gospel doesn't work in Dulac. That gospel doesn't work in Africa. That gospel is a fraud. And it's a failure. It's not the true gospel. Yeah, you can clap for that because that's true. (laughs) And it really does kind of make me angry because it's blasphemy to God. God's not a genie in the bottle. He's not a system that we work to get what we want. And you know what it does is it sets up people who worship the God of the prosperity gospel. It sets up people for disillusionment and they're told over and over again, if you just if you just read the right scriptures, quote the right verses, do the right things, then God's going to do it. And then the storm comes and blows the roof off your house, and you've got to gut your house, and you have no insurance. Where's your God then? That's what you start to think. God, where were you? It's the God, the false God of the prosperity gospel. And another one that comes right on its heels would be called the word of faith gospel. You guys still with me? This is the word of faith gospel. Faith becomes a system To work. Faith becomes a system to work. These false teachings tell people that the answer to every problem they face can be solved by activating their faith. Your faith is the key to accessing what God has available. Lack of faith is what prevents you from having what you want or need or desire. It could be phrased like this. The word of faith gospel is a gospel that tells people to put faith in their faith faith in their faith. It's this commodity that I have, and I'm going to work the system. And it's this system of belief that I'm going to work, that that I'm going to activate my faith, and I'm going to get what I want. Very self-esteem, prosperity gospel, word of faith gospel, they all kind of work together. They feed off of each other. What's interesting, had all this written, all this prepared, I went to New Orleans yesterday to watch Homo Christian win a football game. One of the first ones that they've won in a long time. It was amazing. It was awesome. They were down. They were down 24 to 20. No, no, no. no. That's, they, they got 29 points. That's what they won. I don't know. Whatever. They were down. It's a minute and four seconds. And I thought, we're going to lose. But they came back, quarterback made this awesome throw into the sideline. The guy caught it. Then the next play, they ran a, a, a little pitch and went around to the left side. The guy scored a touchdown and we won with 13 seconds left on the clock. It was amazing. So we're celebrating on the way back. We're listening to life songs. And was, I don't know, it was in the evening. I didn't know they had messages that were on in the evening. And we start listening to it. And this guy's just spouting off word of faith heresy. I was like, wow, listen to this guy, Estelle. And this is what he said. He said, he said the power's in your tongue. Right? It's in your tongue. It's, it's in your mouth. And you just gotta find you gotta find a verse in the Bible to line up with what you want from God. And you just gotta claim that verse. I'm like, listen to this guy. Look, I, grew up, I grew up that message. I grew up that message all of my life. And to think there's still those that are around here peddling that. What, do you guys see how, how deceptive that is and how dangerous that is? The Bible becomes something that we use. We, we manipulate. We control it. We, it's like Plato. It's flexible. We can make it say what we want it to say and we, and, and we use it for what we want. It's a false gospel. Here's, here, here's a couple more. The works righteousness gospel. Here's what this false gospel teaches. The justification by grace through faith is replaced by man-centered self-effort. Justification, being right with God by grace through faith, which is what we talked about when we went through our Reformation series, is replaced by man-centered self-effort. So this is what they teach. These false teachings come in many different packages, but every one of them focuses not on the finished work of redemption that is complete, but on man's self-effort to atone for his sin. And then the opposite spectrum of that would be what I would call the hyper-grace gospel. And this would be one that says the gospel, the grace of God is used as a cover for sin. So these false teachings in the hyper-grace gospel come packaged on the opposite spectrum of works righteousness. These messages tell believers that because of the lavish nature of grace, believers do not have to worry about sin. There's no category for acknowledgement and repentance of sin. But what does Paul say in Romans 6? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does Paul say? God forbid. By no means. How can you who have died to sin live any longer in it? So if any preacher comes and tells you as a Christian now you don't have to worry about sin, don't acknowledge your sin, don't repent of sin because you're a Christian now, it's a false gospel. Grace is not a license to sin. You know what's interesting about all these false systems is that, yes, they're all subtle, but they have one thing in common. Man is the center of the theology. Man is the center. If you want to peg... A false system, a false teaching that you're listening to, you peg it by by thinking about who's the center of it. Is it me or is it Christ? Is it God or is it me? Is it man or is it God? Who's at the center? One commentary puts it like this. False teachers arise when the church begins to embrace the worldly culture around it. God-centered worship and preaching is replaced by man-centered antics and entertainment. A biblical emphasis on sin, repentance, and holiness is replaced by an emphasis on self-esteem and felt needs. People look for teachers who proclaim only pleasant, positive ideas in accordance to their own desires. These teachers will will turn the minds of the people from the truth, leaving them vulnerable to Satan's deceptive influence. It's pretty, pretty clear. The hero of the Bible is God. The center of the story is Jesus. Faith is a gift from God, not a gimmick to be used for our own desires. The gospel message is not about me. It's not about me. And you would think, well, it seems like it's a lot about me. He died on the cross for me, but it's not even then about me. It's about Christ that he would receive the glory and the worship that he is due through a life of surrender that I would offer him. It's not about me. Even in the gospel, it's all about Christ. We are in need Of another reformation today. Christian preaching has been hijacked. By people who have a low view of God. A high view of man. And a low view of scripture. We need a new reformation. May we sing songs. That are God focused and not man centered. May we preach and listen to sermons. That reveal God. As he has revealed himself in the Bible. And may that revelation motivate. True worship of Christ. That's what we need today. And notice what the text says there in verse two of chapter two. Because of these teachings, because of these false teachers, the way of truth is blasphemed. It's not just, it's not just because it's it's false that it's bad. Yes, it is false, and that's what makes it bad because it's a lie, but it blasphemes God. When you malign his character, when you say something about him that's not true, when you twist scripture and you say something about God that is not what aligns with who he is in scripture, it is blasphemy. And it's evil. False teaching is evil and dangerous because it blasphemes God and misrepresents what he has revealed to us in Scripture. False teaching is often subtle and covert. And secondly, you ready to transition? False teaching promises what it cannot deliver. False teaching promises what it cannot deliver. Look back at the text in Second Peter next section here. Speaking of the false teachers and the false teaching, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking with loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Isn't it interesting what Peter says about these false teachers and their teaching? It says they are described as waterless springs. What's a waterless spring? A spring with no water. So think of a Middle Eastern context. He's writing to primarily Jews, but there were some Gentile Christians who would have been reading this letter. But in a Middle Eastern context, can you imagine? You're in the desert. You're wandering for a while, and you go up to a spring, and that spring is supposed to have... And there's nothing there. There's no water. And he's saying that that is what it's like. These false teachers, they boast about something. They say these messages, but they are like waterless springs. They boast, but there's nothing to them. There is no substance. A spring is designed to be a place where refreshing and life flow from. But there's nothing there. And notice it also says they speak with loud boast. And they promise freedom. And the messages are everywhere, promising something that it cannot deliver. They boast. They're loud. They're everywhere. These messages in these categories, the self-esteem... The the word of faith, the prosperity gospel. So the the, the works righteousness gospel. All these false gospels, they're everywhere. They're loud. They're in our ears. We're listening to them. But their promises they can never fulfill, because the promises that will only be fulfilled are the ones that are based upon a true interpretation of Scripture. You know, Israel dealt with this, the nation of Israel. They constantly were deceived by false teachers. Is that not the history of Israel? Deceived by false teachers and Pagan nations. Look what the prophet Jeremiah said to the people of God during his day. He said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. First evil. Second evil. The fountain is of living waters. That's who they've forsaken. Here's the second evil. They fewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that hold no water. Same imagery that Peter uses, Jeremiah used, hundreds and hundreds of years before Peter wrote this. Same imagery, Old Testament and New Testament. That false teaching and false teachers are like cisterns that have no water. They're waterless springs in the desert. And they should be, if they're proclaiming the true Christ, he, he is the fountain of living water. He is the source of all, of all satisfaction and peace and joy in this life. But they're preaching a false gospel. And so as a result of it, there's no satisfaction. There's no peace. There's no joy. And there's no salvation. Waterless springs. False teaching offers things it can never deliver because false teaching has no foundation in the truth. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? He told them that their father was the devil. Can you imagine that? This loving Jesus we like to talk about. He looked at the Pharisees and he said, your father is the devil. And he says to them also in John 8, he he says that the devil... Is the father of all lies. So if false teaching is false and it's a lie, it's deception, what is the foundation of all false teaching? Satan. Satan. This is why the emphasis of false prophets, false teaching is so profound in Old and New Testament scripture, because it is a big deal. It is a way in which Satan comes in, creeps into the church, creeps into your life, and deceives you and leaves you empty. Man-centered false teaching will always lead to empty lives, broken cisterns that hold no water. They'll always lead to empty lives in search of something more to fill the soul. Christ-centered biblical preaching, on the other hand, continually points us away from ourselves and to the only one worthy of our worship and affection. And in our world today, we don't have time to play church anymore. We don't have time to play church in our world today. Why? The issues in our world are too serious look at our world today they don't need a narcissistic self-help self-esteem message they can get that from any new age guru that's on the internet they need they need preachers and christians to stand up and to say that the problem with the world is not low self-esteem the problem with the world is that we are sinners that we are lost and the only way that we can be who God has created us to be is to be reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The issues are too serious for us to preach easy believers and messages. The world is too caught up in the issues of the day for us to just be distracted by that. This is not our best life now. <laughs> it's not. If this is our best life now, then, then, then the afterlife in heaven is not w- waiting for us. We have something else coming. It's time for believers and preachers to speak to the truth of God's word with clarity. Clear, clear preaching and teaching and with boldness. This is what t- Paul told Timothy. Look at what Paul told Timothy. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and, from, and, and by his appearing. Notice what Paul tells Timothy here. He could have just told Timothy in one verse, preach the word, brother. Preach it. Preach the word. But notice what he says in the first verse of 2 Timothy 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus. I charge you in the presence of God who is going to judge. And I charge you in accordance with his appearing in his kingdom. He raised the stakes. He made it serious. He made the serious reality of judgment and accountability before God to be the standard by which Timothy would fulfill his ministry. And he said, because of this, preach the word, brother. Do it in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort and with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They want to be told about themselves and about their life and how to be successful. They have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away. From listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. The day is coming and the day now is. That prophecy is fulfilled. We are in those days. Man-centered false teaching will always be like broken cisterns and waterless springs. They leave people unsaved, not delivered, still in bondage and still searching for the truth. Now let's look at what Peter says about false teachers. False teaching is subtle and covert. False teaching false teaching is, is man-centered and it's focusing on, on a man-centered gospel and message. It promises what it cannot deliver. And now let's look at the false teachers. Look what the text says there. 2 Peter chapter 2, 12 through 16. It says, but these, speaking of the false teachers, like irrational animals. I haven't called any false teacher an, an irrational animal. If I did that, you guys would run me out of the building, wouldn't you? If I, if I named a false teacher today and I said, that's an irrational animal. Pastor Ben. Have compassion. Why? Because they're lying about God? They're blaspheming God? We let Peter get away with it though, right? He was the apostle. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have ears trained in greed, accursed children. So the irrational animals and their accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Isn't that interesting? So who was, who was Balaam? Well, let me tell you my third point here from this text. This is who false teachers are. False teachers are marked by self-promotion and greed. They're marked by self-promotion and greed. Peter uses Balaam as an example to describe them. He calls them irrational animals and, 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 uh, and accursed children. And he says they're like Balaam, the prophet, who was rebuked for his transgression. Well, do you guys remember the story of Balaam and Balak in Numbers 22? 22 through 25, 22 through 24. I would encourage you to go back and read the account of Balaam and Balak. I'm going to summarize it for you. Balaam was a prophet. And it was known that when Balaam would curse someone or something, it was cursed. And when he would bless, it would be blessed. And so Balak was the king of Moab. And Balak said, these children of Israel, they're pretty big. There are a lot of these Israelites around here, and they're threatening me and my power, and my kingdom. And so I'm going to get a hold of Balaam, and I'm going to ask him to curse the children of Israel for me. Because I know that if he curses them, they're going to be cursed. So Balak, the king of Moab, sends his, his uh, representatives to go find the prophet. And comes to Balaam, the representatives do, and say, hey, the king of Moab would like for you to curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam says, okay, well, let, let me go pray about that. Let me inquire of the Lord. So Balaam goes before the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. And the, and the Lord says, do not curse what I have blessed. Do not curse what I have blessed. God gave him his clear command, his clear orders. Do not curse what I have blessed. So then the representatives go back to the king of Moab, Balak, and say, Balaam says, no, we, I, I cannot curse what God has blessed. And Balak said, okay, I've got something for him. Tell the prophet I've got some money for him. So then the representatives go back to Balaam, the prophet, and say, hey, I got a lot of, the king's got a lot of silver he'd want to give you if you will curse the nation of Israel. What does Balaam do? Had God already spoken? What did God say? You you cannot curse what I have blessed. What was Balaam's answer to, to the next line of communication about money? Let me go talk to the Lord again. And before you think that only prophets in the Old Testament do that, we do the same thing, don't we? God, I know your word says that I shouldn't do this or think that or go that direction. I know, but let me ask you again. I know your word says that I uh, I should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but man, she's so cute. Lord, please, could you let me date or marry her? We'd do the same thing that the prophet Balaam did. You know, what's interesting about the story is that Balaam goes back, inquires of the Lord, and the Lord tells him, go with the representative and go meet Balaam. And go meet, go meet the king. And it says that when Balaam rose up in the morning to go, he saddled his donkey. He disobeyed the Lord. It says that the donkey sat on the ground. <laughs> and so ba- Balaam hit the donkey. And it, it wouldn't move. He's yelling at the donkey, go! You should read it. So it's a good story. You should go read it. Numbers twenty-two through twenty-four. He hits it two times, yelling at it. third time. Finally, the donkey speaks up and says, "Why are you hitting me these three times? Don't you see there's an angel in front of us, stopping us, preventing me from going? An angel with a sword." And Balaam repents, but because of Balaam's rebellion, the nation of Israel intermarries with the king king of, of Moab and their people and they're judged and destroyed God doesn't change his mind, we change our mind God's word is true forever but this is what false teachers do the point of it is this, this is the point Peter is making about Balaam and Balak about false teachers, that false teachers are known by their fruit it simply mean watch the outcome of their life what are they after, what was Balaam after what did, he, he could be sold his character was up for sale Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? Ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit Good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Speaking of false teachers, judgment is coming for them. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Isn't that powerful? What's the opposite of that? The opposite side of that is Hebrews thirteen seven. Listen to what it says. The writer of Hebrews says this. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the what? The word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. That's pretty powerful too. So on the opposite end of that, false teachers will will be known by their fruit, but so will genuine teachers of scripture. They will be known by the fruit of their life. Father, imitate the outcome of their faith. So I believe this, false teachers and prophets given enough time will be revealed for who they really are. Given enough time. So, false teaching. It's subtle, it's covert. False teaching promises what it cannot deliver. And false teachers, you can know them by their fruit. So, what is the implication for us? What is the main implication as we walk away from looking at this section in Second Peter, chapter two? It's a big implication. Here is the implication: We must be people of discernment. We must be people of, of, of discernment. Look what First John four one says: Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beloved, don't believe everything you hear. I was listening to the radio the other day and had all these scams going around right now. A lot of people are being deceived by scams. Don't believe everything you hear. If it's too good to be true, it, it is. Test. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe. Just because it's on YouTube, just because it's, it's, it's on a Christian TV station, just because they wrote a book. Don't believe every spirit, but test every spirit, every message. Test it by what standard? The standard of the word of God. But you know why we don't walk in discernment as Christians? Because walking in discernment, testing, discerning truth from error is not easy. It's hard. We don't want to walk in discernment. It's hard work because what it does is it it forces us when we say, God, I want to walk in discernment. I don't want to just believe everything that I'm told by by my favorite preacher. It's not easy to do that. It takes time and diligence. It's much easier just to listen and receive everything that anyone says who claims to come from Christ. And and you know why it's not easy? Because walking in discernment and desiring clarity of truth will not make you popular with people. I had somebody tell me the other day, they're trying to give me a compliment as a preacher. I'd preached a, a strong, bold message about something. And, uh, somebody was recommending the church to their family member and they said, you got to go hear that brother preach. He's a, he's a pew clearer. <laughs> right, well, there you go. I'm a pew clearer, right? I, I just figure that one day I'm going to stand before God and um, it's not easy. But I promise you, a lot of you would leave if I started changing my message because, God's, because you're genuine believers. But if I changed my message and I started preaching the self-esteem gospel, the prosperity gospel, the word of faith gospel, kind of put them all together, we'd fill, the, we'd, we'd fill the building. The word would spread. But we'll never do that. Why have we seen so much compromise of God's word in the church over the last few decades? Why have we seen so much compromise in, in the church at large? Here's why. Because of a weakening of doctrinal clarity and conviction. Doctrinal clarity and conviction go hand in hand. If things aren't clear, you have no conviction. Your convictions in life are based upon your understanding and the clarity of God's word. If you understand it and you believe it, you can have convictions. So the reason why there's been so much compromise in the church as a whole is because we don't want doctrine anymore. That's for the, that's for the elites in the institutions to study, to, to, to think about doctrine and what it really means and to draw all those lines and that clarification. That's for the educated. No! It's for the believer! It's for the church! This is what we study. The, 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 we are to contend for the once for all delivered faith that's been passed down to us. And the reason people don't like doctrine of clarity is because it draws lines. And when lines are drawn, then people make decisions. I either am gonna be on this side of that line or on this side of that line. But listen, without doctrinal clarity, convictions are replaced with compromise. Without doctrinal clarity, clear about what we we believe, compromise is is what happens. What replaces doctrinal clarity and conviction? This is what happens. It's a desire to not offend and to accommodate worldly perspectives. You have whole churches that are built on the idea that we're not going to preach on these subjects or these subjects, or that subject, or clarity on doctrine, or you're going to stay away from doctrine as a whole because we want to attract the world. And then we get them into the church, and then we all of a sudden start making clear the doctrine, and it's a bait and switch, and they head out the door. The worldly, this worldly idea has crept into the church. If we want to win the world, we'll have to tone down our biblical clarity. Drawing lines is not attractional. Listen, so important, listen to me. Why has there been compromise in the church over the last several decades? This is why whole whole denominations are ripped apart over compromise on issues like this. The LGBTQ agenda has split whole denominations. People that are saying scripture's clear and then people on the other side saying, no, we're going to twist a little bit and make it like we want it. It's a big issue. Or the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus is not the only way. We're not going to clearly declare that Jesus is the only way. Or issues like the reality of judgment. Whole whole denominations split over the reality of hell. People saying, I know the Bible talks about it, but we're not going to preach that anymore because the world doesn't want to hear that. When there's no clarity, there's compromise. Or how about this the doctrine of the authority and the inspiration of Scripture? Whole denominations are split over is the Bible true? Is it divinely inspired? Is it God's word? Is it clear? Is it authoritative? Some people say yes. Some people say no, we're not going to go that route. And then there's this one, current one, critical theory. There's a big one. Whole churches and denominations are split over, over critical theory. Critical theory is man's attempt to divide humanity. Critical theory will never bring people together. And when churches embrace critical theory, t- critical theory, you embrace a doctrine of division. Because it is designed to separate, not to bring together. Only the gospel can bring people together. And you know all those issues that I just mentioned? Scripture is clear on all these. God's word never changes. But man does. Man does man places himself at the center of revelation and interpretation and plays fast and loose with scripture. We need discernment. You know, one of the the things that is said, listen, I'm I'm wrapping this up. One of the things that is said very often, this is what people do with scripture. They have no, no discernment, and this is how it is demonstrated. They'll say something like this. What does that verse mean to you? What does that verse mean to you? It's not the right question. The right question is this. What would that verse mean if you never existed? If you never existed, what would that verse mean? That verse has nothing, the meaning of the verse has nothing to, to do with you. The meaning of the Bible has everything to do with God, the one who wrote it. But we lack discernment and we make that the center of how we look at the Bible. What does it mean to me? Now, can we look at the Bible and it can, the implication of it looks something like this in your life, and your life, in your life, in your, your life? yes. But what does it mean? What has God said? If I never existed, it would mean what it means because this is what God intended it to mean. I don't get to be the one who determines what it means. The writer of Hebrews says this. About this, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, meaning the word of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. How do you know if you're mature? For those who have their powers of discernment trained. You know you're mature when you walk in discernment. You don't just receive everything that comes in. You walk in discernment, you test everything to the Standard of scripture. And how, is, how do you walk in discernment? How you, do you become mature? By constant practice. By constant practice. We need discernment. The details matter. Who in here runs a business? Do the details matter? Who in here runs a family? Do the details matter? Why wouldn't it matter in the church? The details matter. Without attention to details, doctrinal clarity, and conviction, the church loses its distinctives and its true gospel impact in society. Without a a focus on the details and doctrinal clarity and conviction, the church loses its impact in society. But hear me, listen, this is so important to follow. I'm wrapping it up. I promise this time. A compromising church, on the other hand, may still have influence in the culture but that influence is used by Satan to keep people in deception and unbelief. So you may have a church that has influence in the culture, but if they're walking in deception, if they're not rightly handling God's word, it is being used by Satan to keep people in deception and unbelief. False teaching is subtle. False teaching promises what it cannot deliver. False teachers are known by their fruit. and Therefore, we desperately need people of discernment we need to be people of discernment i want to end with this it's a quote by a man named david mathis it's an article from desiringgod.org listen to this the question is not whether you ever whether you ever hear the voice of false teachers you do probably every day the question is whether you can discern which messages are false If you watch any television, listen to any radio or podcast, keep up on the news or interact at depth with just about anyone in modern society, you are being exposed to some form of false teaching. If you cannot identify any voices you hear as false, it's not because you aren't being exposed, but it's because you're falling for it in some way. So examine. Examine. Tomorrow. What's your routine? Who do you listen to? Listen to it through this filter. Go back, listen to this message again. Look at, go back and read these categories of false teaching. All those false gospels I I gave you. Look through that filter and listen to the messages again. Walk in discernment. It matters. If we don't believe that this Bible is actually life and death, then it doesn't matter. Listen to anybody. But if we actually believe the doctrinal clarity of the Bible that Jesus is the only way to heaven because that's what he said and that he literally died and rose from the grave and that there is a literal hell and a a literal heaven, if we actually believe it, then it matters to the utmost. There's nothing more important. So it matters greatly who you listen to. So walk in discernment because if we're not careful, we can be falling for it and not realize it. Father, we... Come before you this morning, and, and we ask that you would help us. Help us to be discerning. God, help us to be Christians that care deeply about the truth. May we not be Christians who just say that doctrine and theology are just for all the smart people? No. May we be people who say that doctrine and theology are for worshipers. May we say that doctrine and theology, the study of God, is for worshipers. That we study God's word because we want to worship in truth. We study God's word because we want to worship him with passion. Because we want to know him. We cannot worship a God that we don't know. And may we study so we can worship. May our study and our care for truth influence the way we worship, the way we live, and the way we evangelize. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. I love you. I'll I'll see you next week.